It's great to see all of you. My name is Joe, and I have the privilege of serving as the associate pastor uh, here at Grace. If you could open up our Bibles to <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6, we're going to take a look at the last couple of verses in this letter. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 18. Now, for those of you that don't have uh, physical Bibles with you uh, but would like to follow along, there should be a pew Bible that's in front of you, and you can find today's passage on page 975. And while we're at it, um, if you, again, don't have a physical Bible um, at home, uh, it, this is our gift to you. Uh, please take it home with you, and it is our hope and our desire and our prayer uh, that you would take some time to uh, read through uh, this Bible yourself and encounter the God of love and the God of grace who is for you uh, in these pages. Now, <clears throat> uh, we're with uh, today's passage, we're, we're getting to the conclusion of the letter to uh, Galatians, and in this morning's passage, we, act, we get to the heart of Paul's argument. It really, the, entire, the point of the entire letter uh, that's basically wrapped up in these closing uh, verses, and if I were to wrap up the entire point of the book of Galatians for you, and if Paul were to give a summary statement, a summary word even, of the entire letter, he would say, it is all about the cross. He would say, he would say if I were to boil down every argument that I made in this letter, and if I were to present it before you, it would be that it is all about the cross of Jesus Christ. And Paul would say, that if you are a Christian... That means that the cross is at the center of what you believe. If you're a Christian, the cross is at the center of your entire life. And if you're a Christian, the cross is at the center of what you proclaim. That's what Paul would say. And that's the kind of Christianity that is presented to us by Paul in his letter. You can't go a paragraph reading the book of Galatians without hearing Paul's heartbeat for proclaiming the cross as being at the center of all that is Christian. John Stott, <clears throat> one author, puts it this way. He says, Paul's whole world was in orbit around the cross. It filled his vision, illumined his life, warmed his spirit. He gloried in it. It meant more to him than anything else. And so that's what the entire letter of Galatians is about, but as we conclude our sermon series and our exploration into the letter of Galatians, the question that we're being presented here with is, well, if that's what was true for Paul, then what does it look like for me to, for my world, right, to revolve around the cross, and why is that so important? And that's what this final passage in the letter of Galatians is looking to answer. What does it look like for my life to revolve around the cross? And how can my life revolve around the reality of the cross? And so let's take a look at this passage for today. Let me read for you Galatians, again Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 to 18. It says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. 
For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. And let's say it all together as we conclude this letter. Amen. Now, how does Paul open up this kind of last portion of his letter? He says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, up to this point, as was customary for him as he was writing his letters, I've written with the help of scribes. I've had other authors such as Timothy in various letters that co-wrote these letters uh, with me. I would dictate what I would want to say to the various churches and I would have people kind of jotting it down as I spoke. But as I get to this last part of the letter, I want you to be assured that I am writing these very words with my own hand, but not just that, I am writing it with big block all caps, letters, with exclamation points at the end. And he's saying, if you've been dozing off for the last couple of chapters as this letter was being read read for you, I want you, now is the time to wake up, because what I am about to say as I conclude this letter is of utmost importance. If you haven't heard anything that I've said thus far, I want you to hear me now. And what does he want to say? If you, were to boil, if you were to boil down the entire passage and to say, what is the one verse that stands out above all as getting Paul's point across, it would be verse 14, where Paul says, far be it from me. Another way to say that is, never, ever, ever in any universe let it be true of me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you were to ask, what does it look like for my life to revolve around the reality of the cross, here's the answer. To find your boast in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Now here's the question for this morning. What does it mean to boast in the cross? And why is it so important? How are we supposed to do it? We have various ideas in our minds when we think about the word boasting. And so these are some of the things that I like for us to tackle. And so let's take a, for this morning, let's take a look at the topic of what it means to boast in the cross and look at it under three headings. First, we're going to ask the question of what does it mean to boast? What does it mean to boast? And secondly, we're going to take a look at what boasting does to your life. And lastly, we're going to look at how we can boast in the cross. 
Okay, so what does it mean to boast? What it does to your life? And lastly, how to boast in the cross. So first, what does it mean to boast? Now, <clears throat> clearly in this passage, uh, if, you were to, if you're following along, and you can look at the passage yourself if you have it open, uh, Paul here compares two different kinds of boasting. And so as it has been clear up to this point, he says that there are these wolves that are coming into their midst, these false teachers uh, that were infiltrating into the churches in Galatia that were spreading lies, that were uh, forcing Gentile Christians who brought kind of all that they were uh, into the faith of the God of Israel and the God of the Christian Scriptures. And what they were doing is they were forcing these Gentile believers to adhere to these traditions uh, that in Paul's mind, in accordance with the truths of truth of Scripture, that have absolutely more no merit in their standing before God. So they were forcing these Gentile Christians to take on these Jewish customs. And Paul says, what was their motive in doing this? It tells, us to, it tells us that these false teachers were looking to boast in their flesh. And we'll get into that in a minute. But by contrast, Paul says, for me, may I never boast in anything other than the cross of Christ. Now, we're going to spend a couple of minutes in the next point comparing uh, these two ways of boasting, but the first question that we need to ask before we get to that is to ask the question of what does it mean to boast? When, when Paul says, they boast in this, but I boast in that, what does it mean to boast? Now, <clears throat> if you're to look throughout the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, uh, this concept of boasting is scattered all throughout the Bible. And, what's, uh, and the way it's often used is it's used in military terms. And in fact, if you look at across cultures in ancient times, uh, boasting was used as a ritual before soldiers would go into battle. And so often what you would have is these group of soldiers that are gathered and they are ready for battle. And they're ready to risk their life for whatever it is that they were fighting for. And oftentimes a general would come up and would rile the soldiers up and saying, if you didn't have courage now to fight, I'm going to give you words that are going to muster up the courage that you have so that you can face what it is that you're about to face. And we see this all over the movies, don't we? You see it in Braveheart. Uh, we have Fourth of July coming up, and it is my personal tradition uh, to watch a movie called Independence Day that came out in the early 90s. And so you have these motivational speeches that happen quite often before soldiers would go into battle, but perhaps one of my favorites actually comes from uh, Lord of the Rings. And it's actually, it's not in the book version, uh, but it's in the movie version. If you look at the last of the trilogy, Return of the King, there's this key battle scene, right, where the soldiers are ready for war, and Aragorn, the king, he addresses the soldiers. And uh, I usually don't have slides up, uh, but this is amazing. <laughs> so here's, what, here's how Aragorn addresses uh, his soldiers. He says, sons of Gondor, of Rohan, my brothers, I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship, but it is not this day. 
An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. By all that you hold dear on this good earth, I bid you stand, men of the West. I'm just getting chills. Just <laughs> and I remember sitting in the theater listening to this. I'm like, okay, where's my sword and shield? Let's go. Now, what's happening here? The soldiers that are gathered for battle are facing the prospect of death. And as they're looking into the eyes of death, Aragorn stands up and he's stirring up the courage in these soldiers to stand and fight. And that's what battle cries are supposed to do. Right? And that's what sports teams do before a decisive game. They gather in a huddle, they scream and they shout and say, we have what it takes to wipe the floor with the opposition. And so there's nothing for us to fear. Now, <clears throat> that's what boasting is. And here's what Paul understood. What he understood was that the moment you and I wake up in the morning to the moment you and I lay our heads at night to sleep, that you and I, we are engaged in warfare. Paul is saying, your life is a battlefield. Battlefield over what? Well, in the context of Galatians, it's the fight for what Paul would call your righteousness. The fight over your right standing before God. That means that there is war over your conscience. On the one side, you have the conscience that says, I stand in right standing before God. My life is worth living. My life is valuable. The other side of the battle lines are these forces that are looking to tell you that you are not in right standing before God, that your life is not worth living, that you are not valuable, that you are not righteous. And happens on every level of life. It happens through the voice of your conscience, right? Within your heart, there, your conscience is constantly interrogating you, is it not? Asking you, am I being good enough? Am I a good enough father? Am I a good enough friend or a colleague? Am I making enough money? Am I happy enough? Right? There are these internal struggles that you have in ans trying to answer these questions, but beyond that, you have happens through the eyes of others. There's this question of, are you living up to the expectations of others? You feel as though others are constantly sizing you up and down, and it's not just your supervisor at work, but it's about who you are supposed to be in the community that you are a part of, the role that you're supposed to play, whether that role takes place in the home or the workplace or even the church. We have the eyes of others upon us that are constantly interrogating us. Do you have what it takes? Are you good enough? But it's not just through the eyes of others, but what we are told in the Bible is that this happens on a cosmic level as well, through the voice of what we call the accuser. If you look at the book of Revelation, there's a scene that depicts a dragon that the angels go to, go to war against. And there is, this dragon is a demonic figure, 
And the Bible calls this dragon the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan. Now, the middle word there, the devil, is interesting because in the Greek it's diabolos, where we get the words, where we get words like diabolical, right? diabolos. And that word means one who engages in slander. And here's the spiritual reality that is being painted for us in the book of Revelation. It is speaking of this cosmic being that stands before the throne of God, constantly making slanderous accusations against you, acting as prosecutor before God, pointing the finger at you and saying, this person that you see here does not deserve to be in your presence because they have not lived up to the expectations of their society, their own conscience, and surely for your standards. And so the world, uh, the picture that is being painted by the Bible of the world is one in which you have this avalanche of evaluations, accusations, and questioning over your value and worth that is coming down upon your way, and you're having to face that every single day of your life. And the question is, how are you going to maneuver your way through life with confidence? How are you not going to be undone? by this torrent of accusations that are being laid out before you? How are you going to have an ounce of self-esteem in a world that is looking to do you in? Well, the answer is you have to psych yourself up for it. You have to muster up the courage to face the world, and that's what boasting is. It's a battle cry. It's a battle cry. An effort to stand in defiance before everything that stands to belittle you and to say this, this, in spite of all that is coming my way, this is how I know I'm worth it. And what Paul is doing for us is painting two ways in which we can do that. One way is to do it through our accomplishments. That's what it means to boast in the flesh. To saying, my, my life is worth living because of the kind of car I drive, the kind of house that I live in, the kind of neighborhood that I live in, what political party that I back, what kind of cause I stand for, what my children are like, the kind of grades that they're getting, or even where I go to church. That's what it means to boast in our accomplishments. But the other option is to boast in Christ's accomplishments say, I may not have much to offer, but the one thing that I can do is rest in what Jesus Christ has done for me, or as Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 2 earlier, to say simply that I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what boasting is. Boasting is a battle cry for the soul. And the question is, what are you going to boast in? You can boast in your accomplishments or you can boast in Christ's accomplishments. So that's the first point. But secondly, what does boasting do? 
What does boasting do in your life? Now, here's where I want to dive into this because Paul is making a clear contrast between the two, right? What it means to boast in the cross and what it means to boast in the flesh. Now, so let's take a look at the latter first, right? What does it mean to boast in the flesh? Now, in the context of our passage here, it should be clear to us by now, for those of us that have gone through the book of Galatians, that there was this faction in the church, that Paul calls the circumcision party, right? And these were, according to Pastor Aaron's words from last week, uh, they were saying here, gospel is good, right? You believe in that, that is all well and good, and it's a beautiful thing, but it's gospel plus tradition, gospel plus the laws of Moses, gospel plus the way you live your life. Right? And that's what Paul is identifying here as those who are boasting in their accomplishments. Now, <clears throat> as Paul does throughout the rest of the letter, and should be clear to us by this point, uh, these people are not described as being great people. Right? How does Paul describe them? He says they, uh, these people want to make a good showing in the flesh. Right, saying they cared more about outward appearances more than inward substance. Right, they were uh, more busy keeping up with the Joneses and appearing as if they are good when in fact they are rotten on the inside. Paul is saying, and the second thing he says is they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. If you haven't noticed up till this point, Paul doesn't even say that they're boasting in their own flesh. He's saying, no, they want you to be circumcised so that they can look at you and boast in your flesh. And so Paul is saying the reason why they are forcing you to be circumcised wasn't because they care about the state of your soul. No, they want you to be circumcised so that they can parade you in front of their fundamentalist religious friends and saying, look how we kept these Gentile believers in line. They are using you. Instead of serving others, Paul is saying, they're using you for their own political and social gain in the name of religion. And what's worse, Paul tells us that these people themselves Uh, those who are circumcised, Paul says, do not themselves keep the law. Paul is saying they're so intent on having you follow this one little portion of the law when in fact they're constantly violating the more weightier matters of the law, as Jesus put it, in loving and serving those who are marginalized and caring for the poor. Man, these are the worst people, Paul would say. Now, at this point, it's easy for us to hate on these guys and, you know, perhaps feel good about ourselves. We can, you know, kind of villainize them. But here's what's devastating, or actually, here's what was personally devastating for me as I read this text. If you were to ask the question, why are these people this way? Why are they self-serving? Why are they using religion for their personal gain? Why are they forcing others to be circumcised in this way? Paul tells us they're doing this in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, when we often think about what persecution is like, we think of places overseas where Christianity is prohibited 
people are prohibited from practicing and living out of their Christian faith. We think about lives that are at stake. We think about extreme suffering, imprisonment, and that kind of a thing. And that certainly existed in Paul's day. He, in fact, he himself, in fact, uh, were in prison for proclaiming the gospel. But in this particular context in the book of Galatians, uh, when Paul talks about persecution here, he's actually not referring to the potential for the loss of life. He's more referring to the potential for the loss of a lifestyle. Right, there's a key difference there. Because what we find in this day is that uh, within kind of Galatia, these, there were these religious zealots, right, uh, within Judaism that were basically acting as religion police. And if you happen to be a Jewish person at the time, uh, it would have been okay, like you would have been able to uh, get by if you uh, uh, were a Christian, uh, if you accepted Jesus. But here's where the problem lie. If you were, happened to be a Jewish person who accepted others like Gentiles into your religious community without having them fall in line with Jewish customs, a lot of times what happened was that while it was unlikely that you needed to fear for your life, it was quite possible that you would lose social privileges, social power. It would have been very possible that your social standing in the community would have been downgraded as a result. Now, here's what was driving those who were looking to boast in their religious accomplishments, right? But converting others into Jewish law, right? That's what was driving them, their fear of losing power, their fear of losing privilege, but now as we flip the mirror back to us, and here's why it was devastating for me to read that sentence. I have to admit that a lot of times what's driving me and all of us who constantly fall prey to looking to our various accomplishments, if we are honest with ourselves, a lot of times we would find that we are driven by fear. This fear of losing that which we look to to give us meaning, worth, and value. And you know, they say kind of in uh, popular parlance, they say fear is a great motivator. Fear is a great motivator, right? You hear about these athletes that constantly push themselves because they fear that they will be knocked off uh, the top. Now, in the short term, that certainly may be true, that fear is a great motivator. But I have to tell you, and I don't need to appeal to Scripture, I believe, to, uh, to make this case to you, that while fear may be a great uh, short-term motivator, it's an absolutely terrible thing to revolve your life around. Because when you're driven by your accomplishments to instill confidence in the face of life, you'll have this fear creep into your heart. And if you were to continue to do that, it's like drinking salt water when you're dying of thirst. What happens when you're dying of thirst and you drink salt water? I mean, there may be momentary relief because there is some water in that salt water after all. But soon enough, you're worse off than before. 
you are hastened to your demise by thinking that salt water is going to quench your thirst. And that's what happens when you look to your accomplishments to give you the thing that you need to face your life with confidence. Why? Because any level of success that you experience, that you look to and say, you know what, I made it. This is how I know I'm worth it. This is how I know I'm valuable. And now it may give you that sensation in the short term, but in the long term, here's what happens to you. After a day or two, think about the latest promotion that you got. You may feel really good about yourself. You got a salary bump. You had taken on more of these responsibilities, but sooner or later, reality kicks in and it just becomes the norm. What happened? The thing that you look to for value and worth You've been inoculated to it. Now what do you need? You need the next promotion. You need the next great thing. You need the next best thing. Now, this kind of approach to life may be great for your career. It may be great for your social standing. It may be great uh, in the way you're, uh, you're allotted before others. But as many of us have experienced so painfully in our lives, while it may be great for all of these things on the outside, but for your soul, it is absolutely devastating. That's what happens when you boast in the flesh, when you boast in your accomplishments. But what does it mean to boast in the cross? What does that do to your life? Well... If you're to read through uh, these verses here and really kind of the letter of Galatians as a whole, and especially if you want to get a fuller kind of vivid picture of this, read through 2 Corinthians. You'll get a picture of this. Where you get this defiant confidence that is exuded by Paul here. Even in this text, immediately, he says, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, you have to remember, Paul was a zealous Jewish scholar who adhered to the strictest moral and ethical code of the law of Moses. For him, circumcision was a big deal. In fact, in Philippians 3, he uses it to say, if I wanted to boast in the flesh, if I wanted to pump up my resume, I can do this, right? I was uh, circumcised on the eighth day in the tradition of the great Hebrews that have come before me. It was a primary identity marker for a Jewish person, and yet Paul says, circumcision on circumcision doesn't count for anything. What you look on the outside doesn't matter at all. And he says, the only thing that I care about is the new creation, what is happening in your soul, that from your inward being, that you are filled to the brim with the love of Jesus Christ and experiencing this entirely new way of living as a result of having Jesus live inside of you. And having that life of Christ overflow out into love and care and service of others and living in joy and peace and freedom that comes from the truth of the gospel. He's saying those things are the things that matter, none of these things. Paul's saying, no, it doesn't matter to me. And he says, I'm not just making a show of it. I'm not presenting this to you in theory as if I'm theologizing. Because what does Paul say at the end? From now on, verse 17, let no one cause me trouble. He says, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. 
saying, listen, I believe this with my entire life. This way of looking at life may make me unimpressive to many because I am not constantly chasing after the next best thing. I'm not constantly looking to climb the ladder, so to speak. I'm not constantly looking to win the approval of others. I am not even looking to win the approval of myself, nor my God, because I already have that in me. And therefore, I may look unimpressive to others. I may come across offensive to some. And I bear the marks of that persecution. And it is not just out of what I believe, but in the ways that I served others. Why was he persecuted? Oftentimes when we think, again, about persecution, we think about standing up for what we believe in, right? I have my kind of religious convictions, and I'm going to worship my God in the way that I want to. And if you uh, try to interrupt me in that process, I am being persecuted. Is that what happened to Paul? Absolutely not. No, he was making missionary journeys, proclaiming the gospel to others in love and service of them. And just like Jesus, who did the same, He bore the marks of persecution on his body. And in saying, you know what? I went through hell and back for this, but it is worth it. Because that's what keeps me going. That's what gets me up in the morning. And that's what gives me the confidence to go through life. And why is that? How is he able to have this confidence? Say, because I have nothing left to prove. I have nothing to prove. If I'm boasting in the cross, there's nothing that I have to offer. But if it is true that I'm loved and accepted, not by anything that I have accomplished, but what Jesus accomplished for me, then that love and acceptance can never be lost. Are you following? I brought nothing to the table to have this love and acceptance. Therefore, there's nothing that I can do then to lose it, Paul is saying. And what's also true, Paul would say, if I'm loved and accepted because of what Jesus accomplished for me, then nothing in the world can take that away because what Jesus accomplished has been accomplished. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. I love the words of this hymn. It goes by the title, It Is Finished. It says, a couple of the verses I'll read for you where it says, When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done, hearken to his cry. Weary working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Seize your doing, all was done long, long ago. Friends, this is what boasting in the cross does to your life. It instills, instills in you the kind of confidence that can never be taken away. Why? Because you wake up in the morning and you get an avalanche of insults and accusations coming your way. If you were to trust in the cross of Jesus who gave himself up for you, in spite of your flaws and your sins, you can look at all of those accusations and say, you know what? Every single one of them may be true. I can take that. 
you know what? I'm going to flip that around and send it back to your way. Why? Because even in spite of all of these flaws and these weaknesses that I have, Jesus, the God of the universe, loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you realize that boasting in the cross alone can make your soul bulletproof from the assault of the enemy? So Paul says, man never boasts except, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of confidence that is available for you. But let's look at this last point. So how can we do this, right? If boasting in the cross has the potential to give us the kind of confidence that you and I need, then it goes that we need that confidence in our life to move through life uh, in a way that is life-giving. So how can we boast in the cross? And let's quickly go through this point here. The first thing that you need to practice is this. You need to live out the cross. You need to live out the cross. What do I mean by that? Verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say? By which the world has been crucified to me and I in the world. Here's what Paul is saying. Because God and Jesus Christ loved me and gave himself up for me, it is now as if I am dead to the world, or I am crucified to the world, and the world is dead to me. The world is crucified to me. Here's what it's saying. In a nutshell, it's saying the world and its value systems and its apparatus for gaining worth and value have all but become dead to me. It doesn't matter to me. See, what used to count before, the things that I looked to for success, the things that I had a death grip around and saying, I can give up anything in this life, I can't give that up. For many of us, at various points in our lives, for those of us that are fathers, and especially living in the kinds of neighborhoods that we live in, we've often said, um, painfully and shamefully, I can give up my marriage, I can give up my children, I can't give up my work. A million different ways to justify it and that kind of a thing. You know what boasting in the cross does for you? It loosens the death grip that you have over the things that were once non-negotiable for you. And now you can focus on the things that really matter. That's what it means to live out the cross. Through repentance, through daily reminders of Jesus' love for you, to let go of the things that you once held dear. So the first is to live out the reality of the cross. But secondly, and we'll end with this, we boast in the cross by actively receiving the praise of the praiseworthy. There is no greater reward than the praise of the praiseworthy. I remember when I was in fifth grade in elementary school, my son, uh, Alan, is going to be in fifth grade, so I'm kind of picturing myself in him right now. Uh, At my school, there was a career day. 
where each of the students had a one-on-one meeting with their teacher and talk about kind of what they want to grow up to be in the future. And it was meant to be this wonderful time in which the students get one-on-one time with the teachers that take them seriously, right? Uh, As if our future jobs and what we want to be when we're that age doesn't change every other week, right? Uh, But it was the one time in in kind of our school year where we were to be taken seriously, and so I was so excited for this meeting with this teacher. And so I I go uh, to this teacher, and uh, she sits me down and says, hey, Joe, uh, really, you know, looking forward to talking through this with you. Uh, Tell me about your future job. Like, what is it that you want to be when you grow up? And I look at her in the face, and I want to say, I said, "Um, Miss So-and-so, I want to be, uh, when I grow up, I want to be an NBA player. I want to play professional basketball. Now I was about like four foot eight at the time. <clears throat> I'll never forget the look on my teacher's face. And she goes, okay, that's a great dream. But, you know, just in case it doesn't work out, do you have any backup plans? I said, no. Why would I have a backup plan? I'm going to make it to the NBA. Um, Needless to say, that dream didn't work out. I like my job right now. I like what I do. But when I think about that time as a child and say, oh man, what, what, is, what are some things that I really wish I could do as a basketball player? I'd say the first thing is I really wish I could dunk. If I could just dunk, not on an eight-foot rim, right? That, that rim by the parking lot but like an actual regulation-sized rim? You know, what would it look like? What would it feel like for me to dunk? But the second thing is, and I would actually imagine myself doing this when I was a kid, I remember just thinking, okay, at the, and this was kind of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and their title run, and I, and I had this picture in my head of Michael Jordan clutching onto the championship trophy, and everybody's chanting his name, and I'm like, man, what if I could experience that just once? Set, you know, uh, crouched down on center court, hugging this basketball, and everybody's shouting and chanting my name. My cousins used to make fun of me because, like, Michael Jordan sounds cool. Joe, you? No, not so much but I would still imagine it. What would it feel like to have tens of thousands of people chanting my name, praising me, giving me affirmation, to be showered with that kind of praise? And you may look at that and say, man, Joe, aren't you kind of vain? But what I want to present to you as we close is this. Every single one of us needs to hear that praise. If you were to look at Zephaniah 3, it's a text from the Old Testament. Here's what God says to his people. It says, On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. And listen to what he says. He will exult over you with loud singing. Friends, you need to beat this text into your heart. 
to actively receive the praise of the God who rejoices over you, who exalts over you with loud singing. See, friends, when you and I are feeling insecure, it's not enough to go on the defensive. We need to go on the offensive every single day. And friends, as we conclude the letter of Galatians, that is the charge that Paul is giving to us. I want you to stand in defiance before your conscience, before others' eyes on you, before societal expectations of you, before even the voice of the devil himself, and I want you to cry out, my God exalts over me because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. That is the charge that Paul is giving to us. That's what it means means to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let me just say this. The gospel, as, we, uh, as it may look like in the book of Galatians, the gospel isn't some uh, uh, delicate flower or a, a, a easily perishable artwork that needs to be kept in a glass case. No, the kind of gospel that is being presented to us by the Apostle Paul is power. Not to be protected from false teaching, but to be unleashed into the lives of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And what would be unleashed onto you is a life that is not being chased around by our insecurities, but one that is filled to the brim with a kind of humble confidence that only the love of Christ can give to you. Now friends, what would it look like if we had a church full of people that embraced this truth, that understood what it means to receive the praise of the praiseworthy. Friends, as we get to the end of this letter, may this be the battle cry of your hearts. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel that tells us, yes, we are indeed broken. Yes, indeed, we are weak. And yes, indeed, we are sinful. But what's simultaneously true, God, is that you, the Holy One, the one before whom the angels cry out, holy, 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 you look upon us and you exult over us with loud singing because of what your son Jesus had accomplished on the cross. And so may we look to the cross, our God, and may we have our boast in that cross. May it energize us, may it encourage us, may may it move us out into the world in confidence. And so God, we pray for each and every one of us. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this will take root in our hearts, that this will become a bright and living reality. And out of that, would you use us as a church, God, for the cause of your kingdom. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.